It's here. Jesus said, didn't he, that the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom is here, and yet it's not yet here. This has been an amazing journey through the book of Hebrews, and I hope that you have uh, been able to be with us for all of it. But if not, uh, I think it is probably all available on our YouTube channel, so you can check that out. The theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ, and we have seen that illustrated in so many different ways, that he is the superior revelation of God to mankind. God spoke in times past through prophets and so forth, but in these last days he sent his son Jesus. And we have seen that he is superior to Moses and to all of the Old Testament. He, he just... Jesus is the greatest communication of God from God to mankind. And he is not only the beginning, the creator of all things, but it is for him that all things exist, and it is to him that all things are moving. And as we come to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be thinking a little bit today about the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. In our previous verses that we looked at last week and the week before, we contrasted the old and the new covenants. And we saw that the old covenant was given by God there at Sinai, and it was terrifying in its giving. The mountain quaked and the earth shook and the, the mountain was enshrouded with cloud and fire and a voice came from heaven and a thunderous trumpet sounded and the people were terrified. And we saw that that old covenant proved to be absolutely impossible for the Jewish people, or anybody else for that matter, to keep. It, it just didn't work because of the sinful heart of each human being. But we did discover that though that old covenant was terrifying in its giving and it was impossible to keep, it nevertheless was extremely valuable because it all pointed to Jesus Christ. It pointed to the one who would be the Messiah, who would be the one who would be able to meet the demands of God's law perfectly, who would be able to administrate the kingdom of God perfectly, to that one who would be able to deal with the sin of man perfectly, completely, once and for all. We saw that the new covenant then is the fulfillment of all that was promised in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled by Messiah. And so now grace and reconciliation are available to mankind. We did see also that there was culpability in the Old Testament. The, the Jewish people were responsible for obeying what God had given to them. And though they did not obey it, they were still nevertheless responsible. And that responsibility, that culpability, resulted in their death because they refused to listen. They turned their back on God. They, they were not interested in following God's commands. We saw that the rejection of the New Testament, the New Covenant, would also result in death 
to reject Jesus Christ, the one who has come and, and who has spoken face to face and who has revealed God, to reject him is to receive that penalty of eternal death. But a question that we ought to ask is this. Why is God doing all of these things? We've heard this. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard this from childhood, that God created the heavens and the earth, and he put man on the earth, and man rebelled, and God is working now to bring a reconciliation between himself and fallen mankind. And, and we've heard that. But did you ever ask yourself, why is God doing this? Why? What's the, what's the reason for it? Well, he has done it for his glory. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, we read this. He says, I am the Lord. And the word Lord there is all capitalized. It's the divine name. It's the I am. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Later on in Isaiah chapter 66, he says this, For I know their works, that's speaking of mankind, and their thoughts. And it shall be that after I will gather all nations and tongues, that they shall come and see my glory. God in eternity past decided within himself, within the Trinity, that he would bring a universe into existence and that that universe would be the platform upon which God would display His glory so that all of His created beings, all the creatures, both human and angelic, would be able to see that glory and worship Almighty God and glory in Him. That's the reason why all this stuff exists. You thought it was so that you and I could get up on a Monday morning and go to work, right? You, you, that's, that's what we think. We think it's all here for our benefit. And that's not true. That's a secondary thing. The reason that this universe exists is so that Almighty God can display His glory, His majesty, His power, His love, his mercy, all of his attributes to what he has created to you and to me. God is the king. He is the potentate. He is the creator. He is the ruler. Everything that exists, exists for him and for his glory. And amazingly enough, God in his wisdom, established his kingdom with Adam as the intended sub-regent. He was to be the ruler of this world under Almighty God. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God says this, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, God gave this created world to Adam, the first man, with the intention that man should govern what God had created, obviously under the administration of God. 
that's why God gave Adam some, some rules. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was only one rule back then, and we broke that one. <laughs> but that was the purpose, that Adam should be the one who would rule over this creation, that he and Eve would be fruitful and that they would fill this earth and this earth would be subdued. Literally, it means to be brought into order. Remember when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden? He put them in that garden and there they were and that garden that God himself planted was to become the pattern for what Adam and Eve would do and all of their their children after them throughout the rest of the world to bring it into order to subdue it to rule over it but we know the story we get to Genesis chapter 3 and we discover Satan who has already rebelled against God is now seeking to lead Adam and Eve in his rebellion He's rebelling, Satan was, against the kingship, against the authority, against the power of God. In Isaiah chapter 14, we discover that Satan in his heart is saying, I'm going to set my throne above the throne of God. Satan wants to be king, although he is only a created being. The creature rebels against the creator. The subject rebels against the king. And that happened in the angelic world, and it spilled over into our world, into humanity, as Satan encouraged Adam and Eve to rebel against God's command. And you remember how he did that? He said, oh, God's holding out on you you eat that, this is Roger's paraphrase, you eat that fruit, you'll be like God. What was it Satan wanted to do? He wanted to be above God. What's he encouraging mankind to do? Hey, you're going to be like God. It's all about kingship. It's all about who's in charge. God created this universe to display his majesty, his glory, his authority, his dominion, to all of his creatures so that we might rejoice in it but instead we rebelled but God is not thwarted in his plan and purpose because even before the creation of the world God in counsel the triune God of the universe Father Son and Holy Spirit determined that Jesus the second member of the Trinity would take on human form and would come into this world and not merely pay the price for the sin of man. That's a part of it. But would restore the order that man had lost in the garden. That's why Jesus is called the second Adam or the last Adam, particularly in the book of Romans. You remember earlier in Hebrews, we talked about those two great families. There's in Adam and there's in Christ. And all of us are born 
in Adam. We are born in humanity. We are born in sin. And because of that, we can never hope to be with God forever in his eternal kingdom. But Jesus Christ, leaving the splendor of heaven, coming to this earth, taking on human form, living a life of absolute perfect obedience to God the Father, fulfilling in every aspect what Adam should have fulfilled in the garden. Jesus fulfilled it. What Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam, what Adam lost, Jesus receives. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when you and I and anyone comes to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are in Christ. We are no longer in Adam. We are in Christ. And we have an eternity to look forward to with Jesus Christ as our King. The order is restored. The purposes of God are completely fulfilled. And we who know Christ as our Savior will enjoy God forever. We will rejoice in the display of His goodness and His power and His might and His holiness and His justice and His mercy. We will rejoice in that forever and we will find our greatest fulfillment in loving and serving Him forever. That was what Adam was supposed to have done and where he failed. And that is what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, perfect God, perfect man, one person, dual nature, that's what Jesus Christ accomplished. And we who trust in Him are credited with His righteousness and we become part of His family and we will be in His kingdom forever. Let's take a look at some of the details. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, we have this warning once again. And remember, Hebrews 12 is one of those warning passages. See that you do not refuse Him who speaks. Pay careful attention to this. Don't miss it. Don't let it go by without taking notice to it. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Now the him there in context is Jesus. The one who is that perfect mediator between God and man. The one who offered himself in the earlier verses as that living sacrifice. Whose sacrifice speaks of far better things than the sacrifice of Abel. Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God, but the sacrifice of Christ is even better. The sacrifice of Abel secured only Abel's temporal existence. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ secures our eternal existence in God's presence. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, 
much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. What is this shaking that is referred to here? I can think of, oh, there's a lot of earthquakes that are mentioned in Scripture. Some that have already happened, some that have yet to happen. You read through the book of Revelation and you see a couple of gigantic earthquakes that take place that will have a tremendous impact globally on this world. But I can think of three shakings that were incredibly significant in the past. The first one was at the flood when Genesis tells us that God broke up the fountains of the deep. This world that we see now with Mount Everest at a little over five miles in height and the Marianas Trench a little over seven miles in depth below the, uh, uh, the level of the Pacific Ocean, that 13-mile distance didn't exist in Noah's day. It wasn't there. This world has been shaken tremendously at the flood of Noah. God completely rearranged the topography of this world to what we see today. And if you look, you can see where that really does make sense. And you see how South America can kind of fit into Africa and, and think of, you know, if you just raise some of the sea floor and here and there and how you would end up with even just a single continent, which many now think, you know, that probably was what the early earth was like. They would say billions and billions of years ago, and I would say a couple thousand years ago. God shook this earth, and when the Creator shakes His creation, that creation responds. That's one. The other great shaking that I can think of occurred at the giving of the law, and we looked at that a little bit last week when we looked at Exodus, and we saw that God came down to Mount Sinai, and He, he came down in cloud and in fire, and, and it says that the whole earth shook and that his voice caused the, the, the mountains to tremble. That was a tremendous shaking. We had one a shaking at judgment. We've had another shaking when God gives the law. I can think of another one, and probably you can too. And it was the day that Jesus Christ died. Matthew's Gospel says that the, the mountains shook and the rocks broke. And the tombs were opened. It was a tremendous shaking as God the Son opened the door to eternal life through His own blood. There's going to be some other shakings, and I think that's what this particular passage of Scripture is talking about. Look at verse 26. It says, "...whose voice then shook the earth, but now He has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. Maybe you were a little kid and you went to the beach and uh, you had one of these little sieves. You ever remember those little plastic things and they'd kind of melt in the sun or they'd go from sort of a, a nice bright yellow color to sort of an ugly white because the sun bleached all the color out of it. 
Well, you'd get those things and you'd get a scoop of sand in there and then you'd start doing this. You'd start shaking it back and forth and back and forth. And the sand would all fall out. And what you would have left would be seashells. Now, for me, most of them were broken pieces. I had very little success in finding some of those really nice uh, small seashells. But, you know, you'd shake that sieve and whatever was worthless, whatever was small, whatever was not what you were looking for would fall out and only things that remained were the things that you were looking for, the seashells. And then you could choose the most beautiful ones. The idea here is that God is going to shake not just the world, which he's done already a couple of times, but he's going to shake the entire universe, the whole thing. Think about that. The whole universe. And his purpose in that great shaking is to remove out of it those things that are wicked and vile and worthy of judgment. And only those things that will remain are those things that please him. Think about this with me. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 13, if you want to look at that, you can. It's a prophetic reference to the judgment of Babylon. That was its near fulfillment right after the captivity. But there was a far fulfillment that will happen in what we call eschatological Babylon. There's a fancy term for you. Get that worked in your conversation this week. Um, and it simply means the Babylon of the end times. The eschaton refers to the times of the end. And so if you read in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, it, you, you discover there is this great kingdom set up against God and it's called Babylon. And there's a whole lot of reasoning for that and we can't get into that today or we wouldn't get out of here until this evening. But in any case, that's the far fulfillment of this. And notice what Isaiah says. God is speaking. He says, Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. He shook things up at the end of the Babylonian captivity and it had not only impact in this world but it also had an impact in the spiritual realm because God's anger with Israel was complete and he was bringing them back into the promised land and he was setting things up for the arrival of the Messiah. Now that had tremendous spiritual impact. Do you think Satan was happy with all that was going on? I'm sure he wasn't. But it also meant that King Cyrus was coming down, the king of the Persians, and he was destroying uh, the king of, the, of Babylon and there was a tremendous political change taking place. The world politically was being shaken and the world spiritually was being shaken. We could see the political part, couldn't we? We couldn't see what was going on spiritually, but there was a shaking that was taking place there. Joel chapter 3, this is another prophetic reference to judgment of all nations at the end of the age. Chapter 3, verse 16, Joel says, Therefore I will pour out, the, or excuse me, I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place 
in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. The, the earth will move out of her place. Beloved, when you read these passages of Scripture and we get into the revelation and so forth, God, this, this earth, okay, that's the third planet from the sun that we orbit, which is kind of a small system in the Milky Way galaxy out on one of the edges, one of the arms, which is not really the biggest galaxy in the universe. But nevertheless, this planet is the focal point of God's purposes. This little planet that seems, as we look out into the night sky, so insignificant is the center of God's attention. And one of these days, he's going to turn the lights out and all that will be seen is the glory of God as Jesus Christ returns. And this little planet is going to be shaken as never before. In fact, Peter tells us eventually that at the end of the millennium, this planet's going to be destroyed and a new heavens and new earth are going to be created. There's a lot to come, beloved. There's a lot to come. Haggai, in, in looking at this, looking ahead, he says that Jesus Christ, or his reference appears first, or applies first to Jesus Christ at his first coming. Listen to what he says. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it's a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory. That had its first fulfillment in the coming of Jesus, where once again, God stirs everything up politically. Now we're into the Roman Empire, not the Babylonian, not the Persian, not the Greek Empire, but now we're into the Roman Empire. So things have been stirred up politically. The temple has been rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity, Haggai was involved in that as well as Zechariah and Zerubbabel and others. The temple was rebuilt. And even though wicked King Herod went into a tremendous refurbishing project for the temple, it was that second temple started by Zerubbabel that Jesus Christ came to and the glory of the Lord filled the temple because the Lord of glory was in the temple. But you haven't seen anything yet. That temple was destroyed, wasn't it, by the Romans in 70 A.D. under Titus. There has been no temple in Jerusalem since that time. But when Jesus Christ returns, he will return to a rebuilt temple. There is to be a third temple that will be constructed there in Jerusalem, and the Antichrist is going to set himself up and, and proclaim himself to be God there on the wing of that temple, but that temple will be there, and Jesus Christ will come again to that temple, and the glory of the Lord will fill it because the Lord of glory will be there. And you can read about that in Revelation and Isaiah and Zechariah and other places here and there throughout the pages of Scripture. 
and it will be an absolutely tremendous time and it will be the preliminary event to the establishment of God's millennial kingdom on this earth. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 24. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. God's going to turn the lights out, and he's going to shake this universe. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You know, beloved, there's some shakings in our personal lives, aren't there? Every once in a while, God will kind of shake us. It's a small shaking, but it seems huge to us, doesn't it? Why does he do that? Why does God stir things up in our lives? I think for the same reason, on a much smaller scale, more individual scale, that he does when he moves whole kingdoms, when he changes the course of human history. He wants us to pay attention to him. He wants us to see God's hand at work. He has something that he's doing in our lives that he wants us to take notice of. And, and beloved, those kinds of events come to all of us at different times and at many points in our life. Because all of this, whether it's on the grand universal scale or whether it's on the scale of my own individual life or your own individual life, God is preparing us for His eternal kingdom. And the process of preparing us requires a little shaking now and then, a little sifting, a little separating of the chaff from the wheat, a little cleaning out of the stuff that is not necessary and in fact is wrong in our lives so that we might be subjects fit for the kingdom. Now, I don't know what any of us might be going through at any given time, but understand this. God's at work. God is at work in our individual lives personally, and He's at work globally, and He's at work universally, and He's at work in the visible, physical, material world, and He's at work in the invisible, spiritual realm as well. Because God is moving to establish his kingdom. Think about that with me. Verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, we're receiving that kingdom. It is on the way. It is coming. There are several facets to the kingdom which are absolutely fascinating. It's here. Jesus said, didn't he, that the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom is here, and yet it's not yet here. The king rules and reigns in our individual lives as believers, but does he do so completely? No, because we still tend to want to disobey the king from time to time. 
The king says, do this, and we say, I don't think so. The king says, do this, and we say, well, let's talk about it. Let's negotiate. We still are not completely obedient subjects of the king, but the king does rule in our lives. And sometimes when it's necessary, he overrules. And though we don't want to cooperate, he helps us to cooperate. He, he works on us. But the kingdom's not here yet. You remember Jesus when he taught his disciples to pray? There in Matthew chapter 6, he says, you pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, that's who we're talking to. It's our Father, he's in heaven. Prayer request number one, hallowed be thy name. In other words, God, may your name be regarded as holy. Prayer request number two, your kingdom come. Wow. This must be important. I mean, if Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he's giving them a model for prayer, he must expect us to use that model for our prayers. How many times do you and I pray and we start off pleading with God that his name should be regarded as holy in this world and particularly as holy in my life? which means that I'm going to be obedient to God, that I'm going to recognize His greatness, I'm going to recognize His power, and I'm going to submit myself to Him completely. That's prayer request number one. Prayer request number two is, God, may your kingdom come, not just in my own heart as I, a willing subject, submit myself to you and recognize your holiness, but, God, may your kingdom come throughout this universe because there is rebellion there is hatred there is warfare against almighty god yeah that's what all this stuff is on on facebook and every, all, all the social media stuff and the news outlets and they talk about all the hatred and violence that's being perpetrated against people, by people, and all the kingdoms, you know, Russia invading Ukraine and China threatening Taiwan, all the, what's this all about? It's all about the rebellion of man against the king of kings and lord of lords. We're trying to set up our own kingdoms. I mean, isn't history filled with the stories of kings going to war, trying to beat someone in submission over here so that they can expand their kingdom, so that they can... You, you should read some of the titles by which Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander uh, had themselves referred to, that they were king of kings, that they were lord of lords, that they were the greatest, the mightiest, the most powerful. It, it goes on and on and on and on, and it gets ridiculous after a while. The whole history of mankind is a history of our rebellion against Almighty God in all kinds of ways, directly or indirectly. But we're setting up our own kingdom. We don't want God's kingdom, but God's kingdom is going to come. And one of the things that the Lord wants us to pray for 
as his children is that his kingdom would come. Because when the kingdom comes, then we will have genuine peace. Then we will be able to enjoy what God has always wanted mankind to enjoy, his presence. But until that time, we're still at war with God. We are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us have grace, then, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. We don't, in, in this country where we place so much emphasis on personal freedom, we don't have an idea, any idea at all, what it means to willingly serve a king out of love and gratitude. We just, that is so foreign to the American way of thinking that it's, it's indescribable. We put all of our emphasis on individual freedom. We make ourselves our own little kings, our own little potentates, our own little queens. We want to run our own little show. That's the American way. My rights. As long as we continue in that, we're going to have trouble understanding what it means to serve willingly with love and gratitude a righteous, holy, beneficent king. You see, when the king is God, there should not be a problem for us to serve him out of love and gratitude because he only ever does good to his subjects. Jesus said, you remember, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're used to kings in this world having great burdens placed upon their subjects. Their yokes are not easy. Their burdens are not light. Their taxes are not light. Did you get it? We just approved a new tax increase in Congress this past week. Are you looking forward to paying it? The kings of this world lord it over their subjects. But that's not true of Jesus Christ. That's not true of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And therefore, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. When Jesus establishes his kingdom on this earth, it will then be a tremendous joy to serve him. But isn't it a joy to serve him now, even though his kingdom has not physically arrived yet? He's the king of our hearts and minds, and we can serve him and love him and rejoice in him even now as his individual subjects. Beloved, this is an incredibly important passage of Scripture, and I wish we had more time. But I want us to take note of that last thing. We've, we've considered the warning, we've considered the kingdom, we've considered the king. 
But let's think about the warning for a minute. Verse 29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. We don't like to think about that. God is holy. Oh, yes, He's just and merciful and loving and kind and compassionate. Absolutely. But He is also holy. And you can never play off one attribute of God against another. God demands perfection. Can you and I provide that? No, can't do it. That's why Jesus Christ came and perfectly fulfilled the law. He did it in our place. It's not just his death on the cross that makes our salvation possible. It is his perfect, righteous life that was offered on the cross that makes our salvation possible. Because the righteousness of Christ is then imputed. That's a fancy word. It means to credit, to, to deposit it, to apply it to our account. That's why when God looks at you and me as Christians, He sees us in Christ. And the righteousness of Christ becomes our robe of righteousness. And He sees us complete in Him. Fire in the Scripture is associated pr primarily with two things. The holiness of God and the judgment of God. And they are really two sides of the same coin. It's an indivisible coin. God is holy. And we see that, for example, in, uh, in Exodus chapter 3. Moses was out there tending sheep one day, and all of a sudden he looked across the ravine, and there was this bush that was ablaze. But the bush wasn't burned up. And Moses, being an inquisitive fellow, says, hmm, I'm going to go check this out. And so he goes over, and as he moves over toward that bush, he hears this voice from heaven. He says, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. It was the presence of God there pictured as that burning, consuming flame, and yet it did not consume that bush that made the ground holy. We see it illustrated back earlier in Genesis, in uh, uh, Genesis 19, where God rains fire from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah as a demonstration of his judgment against sin. Fire is constantly used in the scriptures as, as an indication of God's holiness and of his judgment. It is purifying. Remember Isaiah? In the year that King Uzziah died, he went into the temple and he saw the Lord and there was the seraphim and there was, uh, took a, a, a coal off of the altar and applied that coal, burning hot coal, to Isaiah's lips. And what happened? It cleansed him. He said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And so God dealt with the problem. He took that burning coal and applied it right there. And Isaiah was cleansed and prepared for God's service. Fire 
is extremely important in the scriptures because it is a reflection and a demonstration, a manifestation of God himself. He is holy, he is pure, he is judge, he is just. That's the God that we serve. That's the God whom we claim to know and have a relationship with. That's Jesus. We get this picture of sort of a gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And yes, there are times Jesus is very gentle and he's very meek. And he even describes himself. He says that I am lowly in spirit. And, and he never pushes himself forward. But he is also a consuming fire. And if we push him away, if we resist him as he gently calls to us, we will have no other hope or expectation than to have to deal with him in the fires of judgment. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the moment to put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ and to cry out like that fellow, I believe it was in Luke 16 or 19, standing outside the temple area, looking in, seeing all that's going on, and he beats his chest and he says, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Pharisee, the proud religious guy, who was, he was right up there on the front row. He was saying, oh, I thank God I'm not like those sinners out there. Jesus made a comment about those two. He said, this man, this, this unjust guy, he was the one who went back to his house forgiven, justified not this righteous, self-righteous, religious guy. We can, we can try to live in our own little kingdom and be our own little king, and we will discover that we will bow the knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords and that our kingdom will be crushed and destroyed and that we will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. Or we can bow the knee now to Jesus Christ and we can be declared righteous because of what he has done. We can pass from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Adam, into the kingdom of his own dear son, Jesus Christ, from death to life. And we will reign and rule with him forever and ever when he establishes both the millennial kingdom, which is kind of like a prelude to the eternal kingdom. So what will it be for you today? Is Jesus your king or is he just a pain? Is he just getting in the way of your kingdom and your desire? Beloved, don't turn him away. Come to him now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we've barely scratched the surface. There's so much more here, but I pray that you will take your word and through your spirit that you will drill down deeply into our souls and transform us. Lord, if we need to be shaken, shake us so that what is of no value may be removed and so that only you will remain. 
Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy and how you have extended that to us. We pray, Lord, that we would live a life that demonstrates your holiness. And we pray, Father, that you would come soon and establish your kingdom, not merely in our own hearts, but throughout the universe. You are our hope. And I pray, Father, that you will fulfill that hope even this day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.